Hello, and welcome to the EMG Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Jones, Head of Client Services here at EMG Health. And today I am very pleased to be joined by Vanessa Pott, the Director of Global Patient Insights and Advocacy at Merck KGAA. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Courtney. I'm excited to be here on the podcast. Good. We're excited to have you. So for our listeners, Vanessa joined Merck KGAA in 2017 and currently oversees the company's partnerships with a number of patient communities, including those living with or affected by multiple sclerosis, fertility problems, and lupus, just to name a few. Now, her background is in public affairs and communications, where before joining Merck, she spent four years at the award-winning global public relations consultancy firm Edelman. But her greatest passion lies in creating one-of-a-kind partnerships, collaborations that can shape internal decision-making from the very beginning to the end of the drug life cycle. She is also particularly keen to raise awareness of the role of informal carers, a topic we will be digging into more in today's episode. So first question, was there a particular person or event that inspired you to follow a career in patient advocacy? Well, I would have to say that there were probably two separate um, events in my life um, that led me to where I am today. And the first one I didn't even realize um, at the time. So my brother was born um, four years after me. So he's my, my younger brother. And he was born with a very rare genetic disorder. He has XXYY chromosomes. And mm. so with that, there are a lot of um, special needs in terms of his education, but also with his medical care. And now that he's a little older, of course, um, also his, his work and his housing situation. So from the very beginning, as I was growing up, I always was around a person with special needs that needed additional support. And as his older sister, of course, I was his advocate. I was out there um, supporting mm. him with the other kids in the playground and always looking out for him in, in his day-to-day -day life. And today I'm actually his legal guardian. So I'm fully in charge of his medical and his financial and other administrative needs. And I would say that that probably really had a huge influence, even though I didn't necessarily recognize that at the time. Um, then professionally, when I was working at Edelman, we were granted um, a certain contingent of pro bono hours that we could dedicate to um, supporting uh, an NGO or any good cause with our PR and communications activities. And I was able to work with the World Ovarian Cancer Organizations. Um, at the time, they were um, just a sort of loose group of cancer charities around the world that rallied around World Ovarian Cancer Day on May 8th. And they all came together and ultimately actually incorporated into the World Ovarian Cancer Coalition. We supported that with the pro bono time um, in media awareness for the World Ovarian Cancer Day. And that, that really, working with the group so closely, seeing the, the process um, of incorporation into one global um, coalition, that really sparked my interest in working more in this space and ultimately um, led me to my role at Merck. Oh, it's wonderful. And that really resonates with me having a little brother uh, and looking after. I think that that's beautiful and such a great inspiration to have. Now, but that also um, makes me think of another question of, while every patient group has their own unique set of challenges, what would you point to as the greatest unmet need of patients that pharma must seek to address through patient advocacy? Yeah, that's a great question, Courtney. So 
You know, I think the the greatest unmet need of patients that we as pharmaceutical industry can address ultimately will have to be to make products and services that enhance their lives, right? That ultimately mm-hmm. either provide a cure to the conditions that they live with, or at least alleviate the, the symptoms and the progression of the diseases. And mm-hmm. I think what's so important in this context, and this is really where we need to be working so closely with the patient organizations, is what is it that actually matters to the people living with those conditions? What is it about their lives that, that they you know, most miss or most want to maintain. Um, and I think here we're talking really about quality of life and it's so important not to work with assumptions and to assume that, oh, you know, just because somebody has cancer, they won't care so much about this and that side effect when indeed, you know, it means a huge deal to them because it really hinders people from doing what they had set out to do that morning. And they, they just wanted to go and pick up their kids from school, but they can't because they're feeling terrible. And I think that's where we need to actually listen to the people. And luckily, that's where the patient groups play an enormous role in, in educating us and in also supporting us and our product development teams in providing those insights so that we can really understand what matters to ultimately the the customer and that's the the person living with the condition and anybody producing any kind of consumer good would be going about it the same way right so we need to be doing that as well mm-hmm. no and that makes total sense and you know so taking taking a step back as well so plenty of patient services exist but the real challenge is often many patients either being unaware of them or not knowing how they can access them so how can pharma work with patient groups specifically to improve reach and to strengthen the impact of these initiatives? Yeah, so, you know, Courtney, I think, first of all, we need to be careful with what our role as pharmaceutical company can be um, in this context, right? Mm-hmm. So when it's about patient group mm-hmm. services or patient group tools and initiatives, we, we also love supporting the patient groups and amplifying the reach of of their activities like we did recently for example with world uh, ms day so world multiple sclerosis day took place on the 30th of may and we amongst many other um, industry partners we we played a role in amplifying that in creating another sort of social media activity to raise funds and really support the activities of the multiple sclerosis international federation but it's, it's a delicate space and we really want to be mindful always of the patient group's work and leadership in this space. So we have to be very transparent about ownership and what is really led by the patient group and what is led by pharma. Um, but like I just said, awareness days, awareness weeks, awareness months are typically great opportunities for the community, the whole community, including industry, including patient groups, people living with and affected by the conditions to really stand together and to, to speak with one strong voice um, we've also seen great media uptake around those dates and, and awareness activities. So that's often something that, you know, we all really celebrate together. But I think it's important, and we have a lot of conversations with our external partners about this, that we make it very clear also to the patients where um, this information is coming from and if it's patient-led or if it's if it's ultimately led by pharma. Then in turn, the other way around, it's also really important for us to learn from the patient groups and understand if we are developing 
educational resources about specific products of ours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, there's patient support programs that people who have been prescribed a certain drug will generally be um, able to access through an access code that they get with a prescription or from their doctor. And there's a host of different resources that can help them with, for example, administering the drug or with adherence reminders so that they remember when to take their medication. This is important information that we as pharmaceutical company really want to ensure the patient is also accessing and, and reaches. And that's why those resources can never be developed in isolation. It goes back to the point that I made earlier, where ultimately, if, if we want this to be read or if we want this app to be downloaded by a patient, then we really need the patient organization to help us understand what will make it attractive to the patient community that they represent and what services are needed or might not be needed because there's also a great tendency in pharma and I'm sure you've seen this as well, Courtney, that, you know, Oh, we need another app. Oh, we need another this. Oh, we need another that. And people can get very excited. And it's true that, you know, with the now sort of digital era, we have so many opportunities, but we also need to, be cognizant of, of how people consume media, where they look for information, um, what sources do they ultimately trust. And so I think that's, again, a great example where in partnership with patient groups, we have actually improved and really managed to target our materials a lot better. No, and that makes total sense. And I mean, on the topic of resources, I know recently Merck published the Care Wellbeing Index, which examined the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on informal cares. Now, while challenges have always been present for those caring for loved ones, um, I know, as, as you can imagine, how exactly did the pandemic exacerbate these pressures? Yeah, that's... That's a topic like you were saying in the introduction and because of my brother, of course, that I'm really passionate about and and really interested in myself and I would say affected by myself as well. You know, I I saw it in the pandemic how this whole balance in a way was was thrown off a little bit because generally, as I said, I have a lot of um, authority over my brother's life. You know, I can make medical decisions for him and I I can, you know, make financial decisions, etc. And it's in a way, you, you can only do that if you fully trust each other. And and mm-hmm. I know he relies on me for a number of things, but it's also really important to take him along with me at every step of the journey so that he understands and follows. Now, what happened with the pandemic, of course, as you will well remember, the first thing was, you know, you, you can't leave the house anymore. We want you to stay yeah. at home. He yeah. recently had heart surgery and he also has lung issues and, you know, he's really at risk for a number of conditions um, due to a number of conditions. So we, we had to basically pull him out of his work program from one day to the next. Now that work program, it ultimately shut down anyway, just a few days later. But, you know, in the very beginning, um, it made me be the bad person. And and this is something that, that we saw reflected in the Embracing Care's Care Wellbeing Index that you referenced. So the mental health impact, the relationship impact um, it was really severe and was, was something that the respondents to the survey called out. There were also several issues regarding their own physical well-being. So the carers that were surveyed in the report also reported challenges with their own health and also with their economic well-being, their finances suffered a lot. It's always a struggle, I think, for carers because a lot of carers, even just in normal times, 
will work um, less work hours. They will have maybe part-time jobs because they want mm -hmm. to have that additional flexibility and time to look after the person that they care for. But during the pandemic, this was really a huge challenge because of a lot of people being on furlough schemes or even just the additional cost and investment that they had to make into um, things such as masks or other protective equipment. Um, so yeah, so the, the survey was something that Embracing Carers, which is a, a Merck-led initiative, um, working with several caregiving organizations around the world, which we com commissioned and surveyed in nine countries and came back with a number of really, yeah, really stark um, figures and statistics and, and findings. And it, it's... It, it's already something where I believe a lot of us can assume, oh, yes, it will have an impact on carers. But when you see the numbers, it's it speaks to me even more so. And it really calls out the right. need to, to act and, and to not let this issue just go by. So, for instance, if I can just give you a, a few of the key statistics that really stood out for me. 88% um, of the people surveyed said that they had put the needs of the, the person they cared for above their own. And... 88%, you know, that's almost everybody. And it, it means that Karis really took a step back. And, and I think everybody was already under a lot of stress during the pandemic. But it's it's hard when you also have that additional responsibility for another person, a person that often is vulnerable, like in the case of my brother, somebody who's at high risk of severe outcomes of COVID in case of an infection. So there is a lot of stress associated with that. And 75% of the respondents therefore also said that the pandemic had caused them to feel more burnt out than ever before. So clearly wow. the mental health very affected. Um, I already mentioned also the financial situation, and this is also reflected in the survey with um, two thirds of respondents saying that they were really worried about not being able to afford and provide proper care for the person that they care for. So some of that goes back to the additional equipment that was needed, um, but also just the constraints of even getting to that person, right? So my brother, he lives in an institution and even getting into that institution, into the building to provide care, of course, had its restrictions and limitations for good reason. Yeah. But it yeah. just means that he's he's in there. He's not going to his work. He's also all on his own. And it's incredibly stressful. And I believe there were hundreds and thousands of people around the world in, in similar situations. It really depends also what country you're living in and what the situation was. But I think most countries around the world saw huge impacts on their economies from the pandemic. And a lot of people, like I just said, were in furlough schemes or had to reduce their work hours. And that, of course, means less less income, less money available at a time where there's maybe more investments to be made into, for example, technologies. Um, with my brother, we used a lot of um, WhatsApp calls and video calls, but initially he didn't even have an internet connection, you know? So wow. luckily that was a small fix, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's just little things like that where I think people have had to really change the way that they cared. And let's also remember that there were so many people that were part of this survey that became carers for the first time because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Right. So having to look after somebody who's affected by severe forms of COVID or long COVID, for instance, that put this caregiving role on people that had never had never had to do that before. And also um, younger people were more and more 
um, coming into this role of carers that they hadn't hadn't had to do in the past. So I think there's a lot of people that um, really were affected in severe ways, um, emotionally, financially, physically. And um, yeah, it's it's been hard. Yeah, and I think, you know, like looking at all those effects, uh, the survey findings, you know, and then also looking internally now with your own personal experiences and the experiences that you've seen in others, I think a, a really critical question to ask now is how can companies better support carers that may be employed within their own organizations? Yeah, that's that's absolutely a great point. And it's obviously something, as you can imagine, if I'm, you know, doing this externally that I certainly also do internally is raise awareness of my own um, role as a caregiver and what it means. And Merck is incredibly supportive. We actually have an employee resource group. So this is one of our internal networks for employees. Um, for people who are caregivers, informal family carers. And this would be, um, it could be anyone who's looking after a parent or after a spouse. It could be someone who's doing this remotely like myself because I'm not there day to day to take after to take care of my brother. Like I said, he lives in an institution. He's very well taken care of there. He's got his job. But there are a lot of medical needs, administrative needs, right? So caregiving also mm-hmm. takes really different shapes and forms. And I think anything that... A, an employer can do to first of all even just recognize that and make it something that people feel comfortable speaking about rather than worrying about how that may make them look oh will my employer think that I'm less available or that I don't work as hard or that my mind is always on the person that I'm caring for but not here in my job where it should be you know there's a lot of guilt and self self self-doubt as well that comes with caregiving because you kind of feel like you have to be everywhere and perform 100% all of the time on all fronts and it can be quite overwhelming so I think as an employer and like I said Merck is doing this really well it's important to recognize the the role of carers um maybe even help your employees recognize it for themselves because some people might also just think oh it's a given I look after my mother or it's a given I have a partner who lives with a chronic condition but you know it it does have an effect on you and it's sometimes really helpful to speak to other people through something like an employee resource group I think most importantly also this will really differ on from company to company and depend a little bit on the different job profile and different situation but it would be so important for employers to even just do that research and find out what is the situation of the carers amongst their employees? What additional needs do they have, perhaps? Are there any accommodations around flexible work hours, for example, that could already go um, a far way and really help the person just manage some of their their multiple responsibilities and still be able to perform their 100% at work? But maybe they do that at different hours or they um, they need a little flexibility with being able to manage that. So do your research, take a good look at, at what the needs are. Sometimes it's nothing big. It's not a big investment. It's just a little bit of flexibility. I think also some, just some, some human support um, and open ear and making people understand that they are valued in their role as caregivers also in the workplace. Um, and then adjusting if needed any procedures or policies to enable people maybe to work remotely if if they don't have a laptop this could already help a lot that those are little things and you know they will go a long way in terms of 
retention, I think, in terms of mental health and, um, and also just keeping people, you know, in their jobs and not, you know, having any sick days or, or anything like that, where ultimately that, that can never be, you know, the desired outcome for the employer, right? They, they want their people yeah. to be fit and healthy. And these are little steps that can be taken, but I think is so important. And I think another really important aspect, this, you know, is something also around career progression. Um, some carers will actually kind of self-censor. Um, I don't know if that's maybe the right term, but just sort of self-limit their own options for career progression because they feel that, you know, they have so much going on outside of the work life that they will not put in an application for that job that becomes available, even though they're perfectly qualified, right? And and that in the long term, as you can imagine, with career progression, often there also comes uh, an increase in income, right? In the long term, that's that's hurting their finances, that's hurting their 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 prospects of, you know, um, of increasing their income. So I think it's important to really make sure that with little accommodations, what you can do for your workforce, keep them happy, retain them, but also attract new employees, right? I think there's so many caregivers amongst the population that a company that is open about their their um, options and their support for carers, like many companies today, I think all companies are already doing with regards to family time and, and you know, encouraging women in leadership um, and not making being a mother constrained on your career, I think it's a very similar conversation that needs to happen for caregivers as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Vanessa, that was so incredibly insightful. And I think also really encouraging that we have some tangible actions that we can put into place. But it's also just wonderful to hear that this is something that you're actively working on and that this is something that also Merck is actively working on as well. I think it's really great. Um, And I guess, my, my last question for you is, so far in your career in patient advocacy, what has been one of the most rewarding and impactful partnerships you've been a part of? Wow, that's, that's a big question, Courtney. <laughs> so the most rewarding and the most impactful. Um, yeah, I think... Okay, so I think this, this again, I will give you two answers like I did in the beginning. I, it's a really hard yeah. question. And I think World MS Day last year was super special because we we entered into a one-of-a-kind partnership with Twitch.tv. You might know it. It's a video gaming platform, and they do a lot of live streaming. And hence, their audience is very young, is very digitally savvy, is really um, a different kind of audience that one would maybe normally associate with disease awareness activities, where, you know, you have your typical um, charity bike rides or charity races, you know, family walks, all of that in support of a loved one. For, but but Twitch.tv typically, you know, they're, they're quite a different platform and we partnered with them to support mm-hmm. World MS Day, which is led by the Multiple Sclerosis International Federation. And we actually put together with their team an eight hour live stream. So it's all about video streaming there. And normally they, they game for hours and hours on end. And we worked with influencers and Twitch personalities, um, people that are renowned video gamers to raise awareness of MS. And it worked really well. Um, there was a fundraising component also to it. So the, the audience was able to live donate um, via donate button to MSIF. Oh, cool. and, and it was really well received because, you know, a lot of the people in the comments section or in the in the chat they actually did have an aunt with MS or they'd heard of a teacher who had MS or they had some kind of connection. 
and, and and you know it was it was great to see all of that unfold so i think what i liked so much about it was just that we thought a little bit out of the box what can we do to support msif with an audience that they might not typically reach um so just to do something a little bit different and it worked really well so i think that was great and that was actually rewarded with some awards as well as a, from a communications side you know and so that of course makes yeah. me proud to have been part of that but then on the other hand and sort of the second part of my answer it's not really always about those big flashy campaigns or activities and yes they get a lot of attention but sometimes just something as small as a phone call with a colleague who works in our packaging right or somebody who's in charge of dosing and who can decide you know what packet uh, a drug will come in or how many tablets is it eight tablets a day or is it two tablets a day a patient will have to take um I think if we're able to have an impact there based on patient group or patient insight and feedback that we've heard and we're able to change something in our development processes, ultimately, I think those are the things that make the real impact, right? For the patients, for the carers and for the communities around them. If, if we can help improve the patient experience and if I can be a part of that, that's actually what I'm really proud of. That's beautiful. And congratulations, because that all sounds absolutely incredible. And I'm sure that you have a lot more, (laughs) a lot more impactful (laughs) stories. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. But it was fantastic to speak with you, Vanessa. I just want to thank you for taking the time to discuss your inspiring career and hear about the work being done for carers in our communities. So Thank you again. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure and hopefully also inspiration for other colleagues out there in the patient advocacy space. I'm sure it will be. We'll make sure of it. (laughs) All right. To all our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the EMG Gold podcast and make sure to subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to check out our most recent issue of Gold Magazine 2 at www.emg-gold.com. Look forward to having you again for another inspiring interview. Take care and bye for now. Bye.